Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Summer Reruns, was recorded live on July 16, 2017 at the Upton Morley Pavilion at Interlochen Center for the Arts in Interlochen, Michigan. This show was recorded by Interlochen Public Radio and broadcast in two parts by IPR in October 2017. Here is part two. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Hearsay Storytelling. I'm Dan Wanshura. Hearsay is a live storytelling event in Traverse City. This summer, Interlock and Public Radio collaborated with Hearsay to bring some of their best stories to the campus of Interlock and Center for the Arts for an evening of storytelling. The resulting show was titled Summer Reruns, and we're going to play those stories from that show in two parts. Tonight, part two. Our first storyteller is Janelle Bowers. She tells us what it was like driving through a snowstorm to help deliver a child. All right. There was a really cold night in the beginning of January of 2014. Although I think all of the nights in the winter of 2014 were horribly cold, If you guys remember, it was termed the polar vortex, as though it was some sort of amusement ride. But it wasn't. It was just 40 days of snow straight. I think we got about 300 inches that winter. And I was living in Leelanau County, north of Sutton's Bay, um, on this beautiful little swath of land that used to be the Solar Commune. I don't know if anybody uh, has been around long enough to remember Solar, but the commune's gone. But sort of in keeping with its commune fashion, there were some hippies living there that happened to be my friends, and they were kind enough to take me in when I got divorced. So that fall, my infant, my three-year-old, and myself, we moved onto this piece of land, and it felt like magic. It was these like open, rolling meadows with ponds that had weeping willows lining them, and they would sway in the breeze. There were these hardwood forests and and cedar swamps. But by the time that the storm set in in November, that lovely little meadow felt like a cold death grip. And I was trying to keep it all together. I was working as a doula, which is someone who helps women when they're having babies, and I was trying to supplement that income doing breakfast shift as a waitress in Acme, which is about an hour and 10-minute drive on a good day. So I would oftentimes find myself (coughs) digging out our impossibly long U-shaped driveway that somehow was uphill both ways, at five o'clock in the morning to get my, my white minivan that had bald tires on it out and praying to God that I wouldn't get stuck. And then I would get my infant and my three-year-old and I would put them in the car at quarter to six and drive to be to work at 7 a.m. And my nerves were starting to break a little bit at this point. And that car with the bald tires is how I found myself driving down M22 at three o'clock in the morning with a ni- in a 1996 Jeep Wrangler with a racing canoe strapped to the top of it. See, my, a client of mine called me and she said, I'm in labor. Her, her water had broken two weeks early and this was a client that I took that lived in Petoskey. Before I moved to Leelanau County, And turns out that's a really long drive. (laughs) 87.6 miles to be exact. I Googled it today. And 87.6 miles at 3 o'clock in the morning in a whiteout snowstorm in a a car that happens to be four-wheel drive, but it's four-wheel drive that's supposed to get you up the side of a mountain, not on a flat, ice-covered street. 
is really frightening, but also gives you a lot of time to think. And here I was, I was driving down the road, I was really putting my life in danger. I had to get up in the middle of the night and leave my own children at home. I had to call a friend to loan me the car to get me safely there and watch my children. And I wondered while I was driving, what on earth am I doing trying to find my place in this world of birth? I have no business being here. I don't have the capacity. Why am I putting myself through this to give another woman support when I so desperately need it myself? And so I pulled up at that hospital about three and a half hours later, and I, I was really sad, but I decided, you know, this just is not my place right now. This is not where I need to be. But I'm going to put, put my mind in the game, and I'm going to go into my client, and I'm going to give her everything I've got. And I, I grabbed my bag, and I walked in, and I, I walked into the hospital room, and I saw my client sitting there. She was just this beautiful woman. She's a yoga instructor avid meditator, very um, aware and calm most of the time, and the look on her face was just pure dejection. She, she looked so disappointed. And when I asked her what was wrong, she said, well, the nurses just came in and they checked me and I was only, I'm only two centimeters dilated, so they say it's gonna be a really long time. And she had been in what seemed like good active labor for a number of hours. And I said, you know what? Labor is not a straight line. You're fine. Let's get you into the tub. She was practicing some, something called hypnobirthing, just like this method where you do self-hypnotization. Is that the right word? Hypnotization. <laughs> and she was doing that. She like got in the tub. She was just like hypnotizing the crap out of herself. <laughs> and I like was was massaging her and like had essential oils and I had these little LED candles that I put out. I turned the big fluorescent light off and I put on some soft music and she was in it. She was just getting real groovy and she was working with her body and her baby and the nurses were not having any of this hippie nonsense that we were doing. They were like, what? No, we want nothing to do with you. You're all insane. And because she was so early in and not dilated very far, they hadn't even called the doctor yet. They went, this woman, she is being dramatic. So about 45 minutes later, I start to notice these telltale signs. And if anybody has had a baby or known anybody that had a baby, there's this really magical time called transition. And I say magic in a liberal way. <laughs> magic in that our body's doing this magical thing of opening up your body. It's this window between life and death, right? You're getting those last couple of, of inches of dilation. Magic also in that women will look at you with the fear of a caged wild animal in their eyes and say, dear God, please help me. I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this. And they'll start like walking back and forth and sort of their eyes will dart all over the place and they go, I'm not gonna do this, we're not doing this, I'm not doing this anymore because I can't do it. And you have to say, okay, well do you wanna go to the grocery store? Because I thought we were gonna have a baby today. And they go, I can't do this. And so my client kind of looked at me with that look in her eyes and I, she was in the tub and I could see their tailbone was sort of popping out a little bit, and her eyes kind of dilated. And she said, I cannot do this anymore. And I said, you can, and you are, you're doing it. You're actively doing it. But you feel this way because your baby is really close to being born. And she looked at me like I had three heads. And so did her husband. They said, what? No, we're at two. What are you talking? I can't do this forever. Do you see me? I'm at two. It's been 45 minutes. No. I said, okay, I'm going to go talk to the nurses and I'll be back in a minute. So I go out to talk to the nurses and I, I tell them the same thing. Look, she's really showing signs of transition. Her contractions are right on top of each other. She looks like a frightened animal. And they, 
looked at me like, look, lady, I know you think you're doing voodoo in there with all that sage and whatever, candles and stuff, but you're crazy. And the nurse says, I'll be in when I can. So I go back into the hospital room and I find my client sitting on the toilet. And she says, I just really, really need to go to the bathroom. I just, can I have a minute? I just really, I really need to go to the bathroom. And I said, you don't need to go to the bathroom. That's your baby being born. And still her and her husband look at me as that, like, no, that, no, I just need to go to the bathroom. So she starts to try to go to the bathroom, and I, I think it was a stronger urge than would be typical with a normal restroom uh, occurrence. And she looked at me and said, I, th I think there might be something happening. So I went and grabbed the nurse, and she said, ah, fine, I'll go check. She comes in, there, there are sort of three nurses trailing, trailing in, one has a cordless telephone. The other one kneels down on the bathroom floor and lifts up the woman's gown to check, and then everything goes insane. She looks between the woman's legs and says, we're crowning, folks, we're crowning, we're crowning here, we're crowning, we're crowning, there's a baby, we're crowning. The one in the, the, the cordless telephone starts frantically calling the doctor because the doctor is not there. They, they have not called him yet, so she's just shouting crowning into the phone and then hanging it up. <laughs> That's all she's doing. The other one's like grabbing things, I don't even know what she was grabbing, but suddenly it's just madness in there. Well, she's in the toilet, and... Rather than like putting a pad on the ground maybe and just kind of letting her squat and do what has obviously been working really well, they get her husband, who's a pretty large fellow, but they get him to pick her up like a fireman and take her to the bed, but she's got half a baby's head born already. And he puts her on, her bed, on the bed and they say, he, she needs to be on her back. These, these nurses have no idea what to do because the doctor's not there. They're completely freaking out. He lays her down, boom, baby's head. Big baby's head is born immediately. And then the next contraction comes, and nothing happens. The baby sticks. Something called shoulder dystocia. It's when, when going through the, the pelvis, the shoulders sort of wedge in. Now, Western medicine deals with this problem by reaching in and, and getting traction under the armpit and applying pressure to the baby's clavicle to break it and remove the baby in that way. Midwives, on the other hand, they deal with it in a little different way. They'll have a woman flip on her hands and knees and opens up the pelvic outlet and the sort of shift in gravity can help free that shoulder and have the baby be born. And I see this nurse the one who had checked her originally, I see her reaching in and she's got both hands, traction under the armpit, both thumbs pushing as hard as she can and everyone is screaming at my client to push. My client has no idea what was going on. And I'm looking there and time has sort of stood still. I see this baby's face turning blue and bluer and bluer still. And I'm yelling behind them, Turn her over onto her hands and knees. Please turn her over onto her hands and knees. Please turn her over onto her hands and knees. And she's just pushing and pushing and pulling and nothing is happening. And I go to my client and I grab her face and I say, your baby's shoulders are stuck and they will die if you don't flip over onto your hands and knees right now. And in this moment of like superhuman strength, it was almost like she levitated. She just whoop, right onto her hands and knees immediately. And 10 seconds later, the baby was born. Whole and safe, no broken bones. And the nurses looked at me like they might want to punch me because I circumvented their authority in that moment. But what I knew is that a baby came out and was safe and wasn't turning blue anymore and didn't have a broken clavicle. And about 10 minutes later, the doctor walked in and they were very disheveled. 
because he had just been woken up by a woman screaming, crowning at him. And he said, huh, I've never heard of that. I've never seen a shoulder dystocia baby broken without a broken or born without a broken clavicle. I'll have to add that to my toolbox. And he later told my client that not only had he never seen one born without a broken clavicle, but typically they suffer permanent nerve damage. And so I left about two hours later. Turned out I wasn't gone all that long, save all the driving. I climbed back into that Jeep in a whiteout snowstorm still. And as resolved as I was in that moment when I, when I arrived, I still don't know where my place in birth is, but I know that sometimes, sometimes it's exactly where I need to be. Thank you. That was Janelle Bowers. Now, as I mentioned last time, IPR's Kate Batello hosted this evening of storytelling back in July. And since the theme of the night was summer reruns, Kate came up with a few reruns of her own. Here she is. Uh, continuing on again with ideas of, of tradition and all of these things that have, have you do over and over again. And I played Judy Garland in many interesting venues in strange ways, as you can imagine. And one of them was a long, long run in Florida of a show called Beyond the Rainbow. And this show, yeah, this was a memory play. Okay, so the way that this worked was that the whole premise was that Judy Garland always said, the history of my life is in my songs. So I, as Garland the Elder, was participating in the Carnegie Hall concert. The big famous Judy Garland concert, she sings all of her favorite songs, all of her hits, all of this. Meanwhile, in between songs, behind me, there are actors, Garland the Younger, and various people who are living out my life behind me. So I had to sit down center on a stool, experiencing these memories allowing it to register on my face, but not so much as to upstage anyone. So I had to sit and just make subtle faces. Oh, yes, that was painful. Or, oh, that was happy. But I'm very small, very small. So we, this, this show was pretty intense. Judy's whole life and all the good things and all the bad things. And we had this particularly grueling way of ending the show, which was that Sid Luft and Judy Garland would have a terrible fight behind me and he'd throw her to the ground. And then I would sing The Man That Got Away, which is a gut-wrenching song to sing. And then I had to do this whole, I know, I want to sing them all and we'll stay all night. That famous line from Judy, and then say, oh, I, I never want to go home. I, I never, I, I never. And then, and then you got to pull it together and you got to sing over the rainbow. Okay, now this is one of those songs, like, okay, break your heart open, pour it out your mouth. That is singing over the rainbow. It is an incredibly difficult and emotional song to sing. So in between all of this, the, I'll, I'll never, I, I never want to go home. I'm pulling it in. I'm getting ready. Here we go. Over the rainbow. Closing out the show. Big deal. And I'm pulling it in, and I hear a voice say, I'm going to sing them all, and I'm going to stay all night. And I look down, and there is a woman in the front row wearing a lime green pantsuit with a bright white bouffant teased a good foot behind her head. And I mean, the voice, it, the outfit, all of it equally loud. And she's saying to her friend, that's what she'd do. She'd sing the man that got away. Then she'd go, I'm going to sing them all, and I'm going to stay all night. And then she'd sing over the rainbow. Every night she'd do it the same way. I'm going to sing them all. And now I realized that we were going to be on a loop for a while with this story. We were going to be there singing them all and staying all night for hours. So I just looked up at her and I said, darling, shh. <laughs> and she said, Oh my God, did you see that? Judy Garland just shushed me. 
That was Kate Vitello. You're listening to Summer Reruns, a live storytelling event that was put on by Hearsay and Interlochen Public Radio. The show took place on July 16th at Interlochen Center for the Arts. Up next to the microphone is Jeff Smith, who knows all too well what it's like having an extremely common name. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, my name's Jeff Smith, and, you know, maybe, you're, maybe your name's Jeff Smith, too, uh, or uh, I'm guessing you at least know somebody named Jeff Smith. First Jeff Smith I met was actually my locker partner who uh, was alphabetically assigned to me when I started high school in 10th grade which kind of messed with me, right? Like, uh, I'm starting this big new school, and there's thousands of kids, and I'm thinking, you know, how, how am I going to make my way? How am I going to leave my mark? How am I going to create a unique identity? And then the first thing I see each morning when I come to school is some kid shoving his books in my locker, and his name is Jeff Smith. So I didn't like my name, right? Like, it's like, this name is too generic. What is this name going to get me? And the first thing it got me was a case of mistaken identity with a misbehaving Jeff Smith. Because I was in school maybe six weeks, and I get called down to the office. And the counselor is like, why are you skipping class? Why are you not doing your homework? Why are you getting all these D's and E's? I'm, I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm going to class. I'm doing my homework. My grades are OK. She's like, no, you're not. You're lying. And she flips open this grade book, you know, the green paper with all the grid marks. And there's like X's and O's and red marks and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, these aren't my teachers. These aren't my classes. This isn't me. This is the other Jeff Smith. (laughs) And so as I went through life, I would see occasional evidence that there were other misbehaving Jeff Smiths out there. Like... When we were living in Minneapolis, got a call like, hey, Jeff Smith, you gotta, we got to settle up on that bad check you wrote at the big and tall men's store. <laughs> okay? Or, you know, I'd read an article, some Jeff Smith breaking the law somewhere. But So this is all confirmed for me uh, a few years back when I was setting up a bunch of Google alerts uh, for search topics at work. And somehow, I honestly don't really know how I did this, I ended up making a Google alert for Jeff Smith. And so every morning in my email, it's like, Google alert, Jeff Smith. And there's all the news of Jeff Smith's near and far. And what I learned, like there are Jeff Smith's getting in knife fights. There are Jeff Smith's robbing banks. There are Jeff Smith's doing election fraud. There are Jeff Smiths driving drunk, like, all over this great nation. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's demoralizing, right? Like, Jeff Smith from Rolling Meadows, Pennsylvania, was arrested for stealing money from the middle school play ticket fund. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, why are you besmirching? the Jeff Smith brand by doing something as pathetic as that, right? So, you know, but honestly, like, in my day-to-day, these uh, misbehaviors, misdemeanor, felon Jeff Smiths, they don't cause me a whole lot of trouble, but there's a time and place where they do, and that is when I'm crossing the border, giving my passport to the man. Case in point. A few years back, I was coming back from Paris with my wife and daughter, and we fly into LaGuardia. In LaGuardia, you come in this huge room, and there's like 30 custom booth agents stretched across this room. And on this particular day, there were hundreds of people stacked up at every single one of these things. And we're, you know, inching our way toward our guy, and I'm, I'm thinking, huh, I wonder how this is going to go. And I know everybody thinks that, right? But I'm thinking it more than most because as my Google alert has informed me, at any given time, there are 40 or, I don't know, 400 arrest warrants out there with my name on it, right? So we get up to our guy, and my wife gets through, my daughter gets through, and I give the man my passport. 
types it in, and all of a sudden he is looking at his screen really hard. And then he's like typing really fast. And then he reaches for the phone, and before he picks it up, he looks at me and says, I got a federal warrant here for a Jeff Smith. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, that phone call ought to square that away, no problem. But apparently it doesn't, because when he hangs up, he looks way down the line, and he crooks a finger. And I look down the line, too, and there is a uniformed gentleman coming my way. And he gets to me, and he puts his hand in his arm. He says, sir, you're going to have to come with me. And suddenly, like, I am the most interesting thing in that room, you know, because all the thousands of people are on that side of the dam. And on this side of the dam, it's pretty much just me and the uniformed gentleman. And I'm walking past all these people, and they're all staring at me. And I want to say, I'm not the felon Jeff Smith. I'm the good Jeff Smith. I, I'm on a school board. I, I grow a vegetable garden. So, you know that literary device where a door appears where no door had been? Well, this actually happened to me because we're walking toward this giant white wall. And as we get closer to it, I realize we had been walking toward a door the whole time that I hadn't even seen. And uh, this is like the most anonymous door ever, right? It's like white like the wall. It's flush with the wall. The only thing that lets you know it's a door is this like cheap little piece of plastic going around the outside of it, you know? So you'd think, oh, this, is a, this must be like a broom closet. But you would be wrong because this door was like a portal to another world. <laughs> this door was like the back of the wardrobe in Narnia. But... It wasn't a Narnia you ever, ever wanted to be in because this was detainee Narnia. And so, uh, so I go in there, and if you have any lingering belief that uh, racial profiling began with the Trump administration, you just need to travel back in time, change your name to Jeff Smith, and gain access to this room because in this room were 100, about 150 people. Every single one of them, every single one, was some shade of brown, Middle Eastern brown, African brown, South American brown, and one white guy, Jeff Smith. So I'm thinking, I'll be out of here in five minutes probably, but I'm not. I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and it gives me time to think some Jeff Smith thoughts. Like I was thinking, <laughs> what if you were sort of the Jeff Smith of Iraq? like a really common men's name in Iraq? And what if your name was on the terrorist watch list? Or take a step further, what if, like, remember that deck of cards from George W. Bush time, 52 guys we were gonna hunt down and kill? Like, what if your name, Just Smith of Iraq, was on that? What if a couple things matched up, like your wife's name was the same? You came from the same big city in Iraq, where there were all sorts of Jeff Smiths of Iraq. Yeah, that actually happened to a guy I remember reading about him. He made it into detaining Narnia. He didn't make it out for like eight months. So, yeah. So one dramatic thing happened when I was in there. A woman had flown in from Columbia, and she had an arrest warrant for her back home. And, uh, and I know all this because I was sitting right up by the agents, and they were kind of just talking about everybody's thing, you know, out in the open. But the odd thing was they were talking about, like, whether they should have to handcuff her for the flight back home. And you could tell they didn't really want to. And I thought, that's really like unexpectedly sensitive for what these people want to deal with every day. Like you'd think they'd just be like, cuff her, get on the plane, let's go, you know? But, so they even called somebody like, hey, do we have to cuff her? And that person wasn't there and they had to wait and the call comes back, like, yeah, you gotta cuff her. So the one agent like takes the handcuffs and he's like, like that, and starts walking over to the woman. She's 30, attractive, nicely dressed, She'd been holding it together really well, face taut, eyes kind of darting around, but holding it together. But I soon find out why they were not wanting to cuff her, because the nanosecond those cuffs went on, she just completely lost it. And she's sobbing and sobbing and wailing, bending over, and everybody turned away. But I didn't. I just watched her. And, you know, part of it was, it was like this weird thing where 
this crazy generic name of mine that had always been sort of annoyance was suddenly like giving me something, showing me something about the world, not entirely sure what, but just something, and I didn't want to sand it smooth or numb it up or anything. I just wanted to take it in. So uh, not long after that, I got out. They let me go. Back through the magic door. Jeff Smith was free. <laughs> Final scene. Uh, five months later, I'm up in Canada, kayaking Lake Superior with some friends. And I'm coming back into the US at the Sioux. And we're on that big bridge coming over the St. Mary's River and the Sioux Locks and Lake Superior off to the west. And we're getting up to the custom booth. And uh, you know what's on my mind, right? So we get up there and uh, we give the man our passport and wait for it. Which one of you is Jeff Smith? Right. And I'm kind of in the back seat on the far side. And he says, uh, I got a federal warrant here for a Jeff Smith. <laughs> and I want to go, of course you do. Like, those things are a dime a dozen, you know? <laughs> but instead, I'm like, oh, gee, federal warrant for me. You know, who knew? But um, so he's, he's staring at me, like, really hard, like, like staring right at my face. And he says, take off your sunglasses. So take them off. And he's still staring at me really hard, like right in my eyes. And he says, what color are your eyes? And I said, gray. And he leans back in his booth, looks at his screen. He looks back at me and he says, this Jeff Smith's eyes are blue. Go on through. <laughs> That was Jeff Smith. Let's check back in with Kate Batello, who hosted summer reruns at Interlochen. Here she is with another story. One last little moment of, of a life of strange Judy Garland experiences for you. And I have to tell you that both of these happened on the same night. So this is kind of a twofer, which is rather fun. But uh, every Monday night in New York, I used to go to an open mic called Jim Caruso's Cast Party. And all kinds of various people would show up to sing and all of these kind of great things would happen. And I would go every Monday and I was the Judy girl, I'd go do Judy. So one night I arrive at Jim Caruso's Cast Party and the young lady at the door says, oh, Judy, you're in for a night tonight. And I said, why? And she said, Liza's here. Thank you. Yes. You are saying what I was... Liza. That would be one Liza May Minnelli. That would be Judy Garland's daughter. So that's going to be awkward, possibly. We're going to see how this goes. So I want to die, and I walk into the cast party, and immediately Jim Caruso, the maestro, comes running at me with Billy Stritch, who is the music director of the cast party, and also Liza Minnelli's personal music director. And they both run up to me and they go, okay, here's the deal. Liza's here, okay? We're gonna let you do it. You're very respectful, you're very loving. We're gonna let you go on, okay? But uh, don't sing something depressing. You're gonna sing Rockabye Your Baby with a Dixie melody and you're not gonna mess up that note you always mess up. And then afterward, she's gonna be really nice and really supportive. You got it? Sure, I got it. Now go, and I will tell you when it is time. So I go and stand in the back of the house and get a bottle of water and proceed to take a shower while trying to drink it. <laughs> and I just want to die throughout. So at the end of every number, I am full of dread. Is it me? 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 But before that had a chance to happen, oh no, it was not me. It was Liza. Liza Mae Minnelli got up and she sang three songs. It was, yeah, it was amazing. And she was just absolutely genius. And she sang these three songs and the big standing ovation, the whole crowd went nuts. And as she left the stage, she walked out, waved to them all, took her purse and went home. <laughs> so as soon as she was gone, Billy Stritch at the piano goes, all right, Kate, you're up, coast is clear. 
So they call me up. And he says, oh, and, and you don't have to do Rockabye. Let's do something sad. Let's do The Man That Got Away. Let's do that one tonight. Okay. So, again, if you're not familiar with this song, it's extremely difficult and extremely gut-wrenching. And we get to the very end of the song, the tail end of the hardest part of the whole song, where you're standing there going, ever since this world began, there is nothing sadder than. And the chord just fell out the bottom of my mind and just landed on the stage. And I stood there. And Billy looked at me. And he got up from behind the piano. He walked around the piano. He walked to the front of the stage, he bent down, he picked up the mic cord, he plugged it back into the microphone, he handed me the microphone, he went back to the piano, he sat down, he looked at me, I looked at him, and we said, Oh, one man, woman, looking for the man that got away. That's it. <laughs> that was Kate Vitello. Finally this evening, Karen Stein. Karen is the founder of Hearsay in Traverse City. And next, she tells us what the morning rush in Chicago can be like. It's the morning rush hour on a Tuesday in April 2008 in Chicago. And I'm doing the usual Tuesday morning thing. I get on the Blue Line L to go to work. The doors close behind me. And I feel myself die a little on the inside. My hair is a mess. My bra is probably a fantastic idea, but it's in my bedroom somewhere. <laughs> and I'm wearing what I call my fugly pants. They are a nondescript fabric. They are so long that I trip on the cuffs, and they are black. So every time I walk past a stray hair, piece of fuzz, or leaf, it sticks to my legs, and it's very obvious. And yet I wear them every day. I look terrible, and I don't have the energy to care. You see, at this time in my life, the only thing that makes sense to me is my dog. I can barely stand to be at my apartment because the paint is peeling in strips from the ceiling, and my cat has been dead for two years, so the winter mice are running in and out of the walls with a very high likelihood of survival. And I can barely stand to be at my job because apparently editing a magazine for surgeons does not have enough to do in any given day. And so my work days pretty much consist of two hours of work and five hours of openly watching Hulu at my desk and not even trying to hide it a little bit. <laughs> and I can barely stand to be around my boyfriend because when my dad died the year before and I came home, I was greeted with an apartment full of passed out friends, empty beer bottles and pizza boxes, and a really bad attitude because he was mad I woke him up. <laughs> At this point in my life, a good day is finding my favorite cereal on sale and stocking up for future breakfasts at work. And on this particular day, I have a giant plastic Target bag with five boxes of Kashi oat and wild blueberry cereal. <laughs> now, recognizing that my life had kind of descended into the mediocre began the year before with my father's unexpected death. He was relatively young, and I was on this loop. I was always asking myself, if I died tomorrow, did I live a good life? The answer was never yes. I wanted to fix so many things in my life, and I didn't know where to start. So I pretty much just did the same thing every day and hoped I wouldn't fall apart. And it was hard enough to not fall apart having to ride the train to work every day. I was lucky enough to live on the stop that was five stations from the start of the line. So I was lucky enough to always get a seat but soon enough, the car would be filled or you know, stretched to its 75-person capacity. And just every square inch full of people, and some of them rude, and some of them smelling bad, and some of them just trying to jockey for that extra inch. Everyone touching, nobody happy about it. And there was also the matter of 
a history of panic disorder that I had going for me. At this time in my life, it has been a very long time since I've had a panic attack, but every time we go into the tunnel, I wonder, is this the day the panic comes back? Because going into a subway tunnel and getting stuck is one of my biggest fears. So on this particular day, we go into the tunnel, the first underground stop on the line, and it's only one stop from where I need to get off to go to work. And we're sitting at the, at the station for what feels like quite some time. But in my head, I can get out at any time. The doors are still open. And there's also this sense of relief that I feel when you go underground, there's really no outside world. And you can pretend you're invisible. And at this point in my life, I really liked that. So even though I was uncomfortable, I was also kind of OK. But then the doors close, and on we go to Clark and Lake. But we only go so far, and we stop. And then we go, and then we stop. And then we lurch, and then we creep, and then nothing and nothing, and nothing. Typically, when things like this happen, the conductor comes on right away and says, thank you for your patience. We will be moving along shortly. And the conductor doesn't say this right away. And so, glancing around, but it's no big deal. I mean, being stuck temporarily in a tunnel is just part of riding the subway and I'm trusting that we're going to be moving along shortly, just like he said. Perhaps the T word, terrorism, is on people's minds, because at this point, this is something that, you know, if there's something unusual, you're stuck in the tunnel, maybe that's what's happening, because we start to realize, oh, wow, the conductor isn't really saying anything, but most importantly, he's not saying why we're stuck in the tunnel. And all of a sudden, it becomes really hard to keep pretending that we are not uncomfortable. And then the lights go out. Yay! That they've cut the power means that we are not going anywhere for a while. And it's getting hot in there, like really, really hot. It's April, but it snowed the night before, and it's very cold today, so we are all bundled up in winter coats. And so people are beginning to fidget a little. People are beginning to breathe a little bit more erratically. And we're sweating. We're so sweaty. I am so sweaty. It is so hot in there, and also, Yay, being uncomfortably hot was always one of my panic triggers when I was having panic attacks. And so I get into this conversation with myself and I say, all right, hey, hey, Karen, hey, look. Today may well be the day that panic comes back, but you're gonna fight it. So I take off my coat and I push up the sleeves of my sweater and I yank up the legs of my fugly pants. I don't care that I haven't shaved my legs in I don't know how long. And I start to sing to myself. You're fine, you're fine, you're totally fine. You are not going to die of being hot. And I figure that's the answer. I'm going to keep singing songs like that to myself, and I am not going to panic. And the panic does come to the surface, but somehow it's not me. It begins with a woman who is supposed to be defending her doctoral thesis in, oh, yeah, you know, a half hour. And she is just rambling to everyone in earshot about how screwed she is. And I don't mean to be dismissive because, yeah, she's screwed. And she just is sobbing until she's hyperventilating. And then a pregnant woman in a sideways seat directly in front of me thinks that she's going to be sick. And she's kind of choking it down, presumably out of courtesy to the rest of us. And so I say to her, excuse me, hi, I have a dog because 
I don't want it to be weird when I magically pull a plastic grocery bag out of my coat pocket. And I hand it to her, and she throws up into it, ties it, and puts it on the ground. But she's not done. And I had another bag. And I hand her the bag, and same thing. And we do this dance about four more times, deep pockets. And finally, there's no more bags, but there's still more barf. And so I take all five boxes of cereal out of the Target bag, and I say, look, I'm really sorry. This is the last one. Are you OK, or should I find out if there are other dog owners on the train? All throughout this, the conductor is saying very little. Perhaps I don't have a watch on me, but it feels like maybe every 15 minutes, thank you for your patience, we will be moving along shortly. We are at the point that we no longer accept his gratitude, and we do not believe that we will be moving along shortly because clearly this is where we live now. Passengers have begun opening the windows, and the tunnel air is stagnant and a little smoky, and it smells terrible, but it's cool, and it feels incredible. And then suddenly, above everything that's happening, there's this voice. Hey, I'm stuck underground. I don't know when I'm going to be there, but I'll let you know. <gasps> that man's phone works in the tunnel. This is unheard of at this time. And so everyone starts freaking out. Can I borrow your phone? Can I borrow your phone? Please, sir, can we borrow your phone? And he is gracious enough to let people do this, starting, of course, with the sobbing thesis lady. And just people are passing the phone all around, calling their bosses, calling their assistants to say where they are. And then someone tries to hand the phone to me, and I just wave it off. I don't care if my employer knows where I am. I could not care less that I'm not at work right now. And yes, I'm so unhappy to be in this tunnel, but I know that I'm also going to be so unhappy in my cubicle, hunched over a bowl of cereal, watching The Office on my computer, <laughs> and getting really mad that the gym in the cubicle right next to mine is not my best friend like this gym is with Pam. The conductor, after a while, has more to say, but now he's yelling and swearing at passengers, get back in the car, close the door, because passengers in one car have started abandoning ship. And the passengers in other cars see this happening, and they do the same. And we are in our car watching these torsos float past the window in the tunnel and we're just dumbfounded, we're amazed. You can do that? Are we supposed to do that? I don't know if this timeline is clear, but the reason people are abandoning ship and we are freaking out that we are not among them is that at this point, it has been two and a half hours. Within minutes, CTA workers open our doors and they tell us to evacuate. And so we put on our coats and they help us out onto the narrow gangway that's between the tunnel wall and the train. And we have to actually merge into traffic, kind of, because there were three other trains that were stuck in the tunnel. It wasn't just us. So there were a lot of people trying to make their way out. And I have no idea where I'm going, but I trust that everyone in front of me is going to get me there. So it's about a quarter mile up the tunnel, and we come to this spiral staircase. And it looks like it's going to be tricky, and it is tricky. And I've got sweaty hair plastered to my forehead, and I've got five loose boxes of cereal in my arms because I gave away my bag. And as I get closer to the daylight, I must have had this look of bewilderment on my face. So I am not prepared for the news camera that is pointed at the subway sidewalk grate that we are all popping out of one by one. Our top story tonight, sweaty cereal hoarder in super awesome <laughs> pants survives subway 
And sorry, fellas, she's taken. <laughs> so ultimately, the, the series of events led to some major changes in the emergency protocols for how the CTA handles subways that are stuck underground. And more immediately, it led to major changes in me. You see, once I got to the office, and I'm putting <laughs> my, all my cereal boxes into the overhead bin and my cubicle, I have this thought. If I was able to live to tell that tale, I was able to confront one of my biggest fears in life, and it turned out to just be an uncomfortable and mildly amusing inconvenience, how is it possible that it's okay that this boyfriend, this job, this apartment are my real life? If I died in that tunnel, did I live a good life? But then something hits me. I'm asking the wrong question. I'm not dead. Why am I asking this in past tense? The question I should be asking is, am I living a good life? And of course, the answer is still no. But by putting it in the present tense, I've given myself hope. I don't know how to fix it, any of it, but I think I can. And a year later, I've been through grief counseling. I've broken up with my boyfriend job and apartment. And I'm in the car with my dog and a fraction of my belongings, not the fugly pants. I may have shredded them in a fit of dye pants dye. <laughs> and we're driving to try something new in central Mexico. I had been so afraid of falling apart that I just froze in place and didn't change a thing. But it took literally getting stuck in a tunnel underground for hours for me to realize that actually I wasn't stuck at all. I had never been stuck. Thank you. That was Karen Stein. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Interlochen Center for the Arts and Interlochen Public Radio for collaborating on this show. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us on October 16, 2017 for our Season 5 opener, Go Hearsay, It's Your Birthday. Thanks for listening.